0: It sounds like that's coming through. Great. Uh, can we borrow that just for Juliet? Um, just a bit. You want it a little bit lower? You want to be able to see me? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Not just my wife wants to be
0: able to see me. Other people want to see us. Okay, so just before Juliet reads for us. Um, okay, now let's do that first. Juliet, why don't you read the passage from John 17:20 20 to 26.
1: The Bible reads, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In them, I in them I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you have sent me sorry then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved me even as you have loved me father i want those you have given me to be with me where i am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me even before the creation of the world Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know you that have that they, they, know, they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love, the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Juliet. Uh, Juliet is a Shall I move slightly? Sounds like it's echoing. Go back, go back. Okay, go. Um, Julia is an honorary member of our life group. uh, Bridget's daughter, uh, just come down from Zambia, and uh, yeah. So if we start getting a few young men joining our life group in the next few weeks, I'll know why. let me introduce myself for those that don't know you, this is a uh, once in 10 years experience for me standing up here, so if you can just go back to the photo at the very beginning. Thank you. Um, my wife, Saskia, is sitting at the back there, as far away as possible from the front. Uh, sitting next to her is my lovely mother-in-law, Marianne. and. Uh, Saskia is my second best friend. Jesus has no rival in my heart. So thank you, Cassandra, for emphasizing that in the worship. Uh, But Saskia is the very best gift God has ever given me in my life after himself. Um, And uh, you lot are not too bad either. I quite like being part of this church. All right, we're going to be speaking, I'm going to be speaking on a something I've entitled Seeing the Beauty of Jesus. Now, I've had many influences over the last 30 odd years of being a believer, but for many, many years I've been influenced by what I've come to understand as mentors, most of whom are dead, Michael Eaton, C.S. Lewis, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Tim Keller, to name a few. Tim Keller being the most influential, and he is a pastor that planted a church about 30, 40 years ago in Manhattan, New York. And I consider him to be the finest preacher of the gospel to the city. And thousands of people who don't believe in Jesus come and listen to him. Um, And so for years and years and years, I've been listening to his preaching every single week. And in the last few months, there's one particular sermon that impacted me very, very powerfully. So when the leadership took this step of asking me to speak, Which is the first time I'm doing this in 10 years, um, I knew exactly where to go. So thank you for trusting me to do this, and I want to say that this passage is quite extraordinary. It is Jesus praying the night before he's about to die, and he's with his disciples just hours before his betrayal and his arrest, and it's one of those most intimate moments in all of scripture where we see Christ speaking to his Father. So we get an insight into that relationship. Jesus is praying not just for us, but for his, not just for, sorry, for his disciples in the room at the time. I will calm down, okay? The butterflies are starting to fly in formation. All right. Um, Jesus is praying not just for his disciples that were with him in the room, but for all that believe in him, including us. And if you're not yet a believer, if you're somebody looking into the claims of Christ, you're curious about the Bible, about this Christianity thing, we are so happy you are here. And I trust that God will speak to you through what what I have to share this morning and will help you on your spiritual journey. John Knox, 16th century founder of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, when he was dying, he asked his wife to read him John 17. And I hope that by the end of this morning, you'll see why. These few verses that we're going to cover help us to face any challenge in life, even death itself. We're going to see three things. We're going to see what we most need, how we receive it, and what the final outcome will be. Those of you who are watching carefully are noticing that I am reading and it's because I have over-prepared to the point where I wanna know if if I lose track, I know exactly where I am, okay. (laughs) Um, In Jesus' great petition in verse 23, he says to the Father this, he says, I want the world to know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. What he's actually saying, praying is, I want the world to know the gospel. Because if you look at those two things that he's praying for, and you put them together, it's the gospel. First, he wants the world to know that he was sent. He wasn't just born, he was sent. He was born, Jesus was born, he is a human being, But he wasn't only born, because he wasn't only a human being. To be sent means he existed before he was born. He was the son of God. If he was, if he was just born, then he's just one more human teacher telling us how to live our lives, so that if we live a good life, then God will take us to heaven. If he was only born, then he was just one more human teacher telling us how to save ourselves. But He was sent. He's the son of God came to come to save us, to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death we should have died in our place so that when we believe in him, God accepts us not because of our work but because of Jesus' work. So unlike all the other founders of all the other religions, Jesus is a sent savior. Secondly, the last part of that sentence is astonishing. He says, I want the world to know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Even as. If he was a human teacher telling us how to live so that if we live a good enough life, God would bless us and take us to heaven, then in that case, God would love us to the degree we deserve. But, so so if you, lo- so if you live a good life this much, then God will live you, love you this much. If you live a good enough life this much, then God will love you that much. God would always love you to the degree that your life warranted, to the degree that you deserve. But that's not what Jesus is saying. The gospel is, because Jesus Christ has saved us, the moment we believe, God loves us not as we deserve, but as Jesus deserves. I want the world to know that you have loved them even as you have loved me, to the same degree that you have loved me, is what Jesus is saying. We are not saved because of our work, but because of Jesus' work. The Bible says we are clothed in Jesus Christ, that that Jesus' perfect holiness and his beauty and his righteousness is imputed to us, which means it's as if it counts as if it's ours. Think of the magnitude of the love of the Father for the Son. Only the Father knows that what Jesus went through to save us, only the Father knows how much he loved us, how brave he was, how much he gave up. Therefore, only the Father knows the complete beauty and greatness of Jesus Christ. The Father's love for the Son would be infinite, eternal, infallible, unvarying. That's exactly how He loves you the moment you believe. He loves you exactly in quality and quantity as he loves his own son. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on the implications of this, he says the following. In this Christian life, there are many problems and difficulties, but more and more it seems to me that most of our problems, indeed if not all of them, arise from the simple fact That we fail to realize, understand and appreciate what is the real truth about us as Christian people. We read these things in the scripture without meditating on them. So we don't realize that these are not abstract truths, but they are truths about us. If we did that, our entire lives would be revolutionized. In other words, do you see that this verse is true about you? Do you realize what this means? Is it a reality for you? Do you really grasp it? Do you realize that this is you, this is true of you, that he loves you like this? No, you don't. You would be way happier, more content, better able to take criticism without getting defensive, much calmer, more poised. Just think about it. Do you realize who you are in Jesus Christ? Do you realize what you have? No. You'd be so different. I'd be so different. We would be so different. So what's the problem? Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor wrote, The Sources of the Self, The Making of the Modern Identity. It's an account of how modern Western society's understanding of self and identity is so different from every other culture in history. Taylor describes the human need for recognition. He says that we don't simply exist and have identities, each sufficient in ourselves. We develop identities in social contexts. We seek the recognition and legitimacy of our identities from others. In non-Western cultures today and in Western culture in previous centuries, how did you find out your identity? How did you find out who you were? Your parents told you, your tribe told you, your people told you. They said, this is who you are, this is who you should try to be, and if you aspire to that and if you fulfill it, then they said, you're a good person. So in every other culture, when your people said, here's who you are, and then when you lived up to that, then they affirmed you and you had self-esteem and self-worth as a person. But... We are the first culture in which you decide who you want to be. You don't let anybody else tell you. However, if you are to determine your identity, then once you go deep into your heart and you figure out who you are, the problem is that now we desperately need affirmation from everybody. We come up with this identity all by ourselves, and now we go out into the world, we need recognition and we depend on constant affirmation. Consequently, Charles Taylor says that we have the most fragile identities in the history of the world, because we need everybody to affirm us. We fall apart if people don't affirm us, if they disagree with us, or if they dislike us. An incredible, incisive insight into the way the current culture is going. Freddie DeBoer, a US social blogger, I thought he was possibly Afrikaans, maybe he's got Dutch background. Commenting on this fragility of the modern identity, he wrote an article entitled, You Can't Fake It. I've been increasingly preoccupied by a basic question. Why is everybody such a wreck? Why do people who have every reason to feel emotionally and socially secure still feel so insecure? He observes. We have vast intellectual architecture telling us that physical attractiveness hierarchies are cruel and gendered and unfair. We all agree with that. But we still care about being hot, and we still judge each other about it. And all our theories and our papers and our humanities seminars seem entirely inadequate to end the task, end the problem. We have a political critique of all the ways in which human worth is dictated by traditional inequalities of race and sex and class. And we have a whole set of social concepts that are designed to fight those negative effects. We have a self-help culture that constantly tells us, you are wonderful, you are brilliant, you are your unique light, and you can shine the way in a dark world. We have a world of marketing that is constantly affirming us. We have incredible social media tools to craft a perfect idealized vision of ourselves, curated to the millimeter, so that we can present to the world exactly the kind of self that we have determined. Everything is there to help you feel good about yourself. So we've got all these tools, and none of it is working. He concludes, I see people who are the most outwardly secure and confident. They never betray a hint of doubt or guilt or remorse. They project cool at all times. They're popular. They're getting positive affirmation all the time. They're academically and professionally successful. They have money and respect, and yet the flow of their lives reveals that inside they hate themselves. None of that stuff matters. None of it gets at the core self-hatred within. And I'm beginning to wonder, is this the human condition? Charles Taylor would answer, yes, and modern culture aggravates our insecurity. What DeBoer is describing as self-hatred and all our efforts to make ourselves feel good about ourselves and all our desperate screaming for affirmation and recognition, and that everybody deep down knows that it's not working, the Bible answers, yes. The sense that we're not okay is a universal sense, and we all know deep down that we're sinners. This insecurity that they're touching on is like a rock on everybody's heart. It's a rock on your heart. And the social media, the self-help, the therapy, and the self-esteem movement, and all the rest of this man-made stuff is as effective as a water pistol trying to dislodge that rock. But this verse, the truth that in Jesus Christ, the Father loves you even as he loves Jesus, that's the dynamite that will blast that rock of insecurity off your heart, that will explode that rock off your heart, if you believed it. Lloyd-Jones says, all of your problems come down to this, that you don't really believe it. It's not a reality to you. So, point one, this is the thing that you most need. You need to believe the gospel, not just believe the gospel in your head, but believe the gospel in your heart. Secondly, how do we receive this incredible love so that it actually changes our lives? In verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus is saying that his brothers and sisters at the end of time go to be where he is. And we see the glory of, of the love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been enjoying for all eternity, perfectly loving one another and glorifying each other. Some theologians have described this as a sort of divine dance. And Jesus says at the, t- at the end of time, we are going to be incorporated into that love and glory. It's astounding, but how does that help us now? Jesus is is describing an incredible experience that we will only know fully in the future, but will we know it only in the future? No. Verse 22, Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, past tense. So how do we experience his glory now? 2 Corinthians 3.18 and 4.6. We who contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Note, the present tense. It's we who contemplate. We are being transformed. We are, he has made his light shine in our hearts now. 1 John 3, 2, when Jesus, sorry, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When we see him, we'll be like him, because we'll see him as he really is. So when we see Jesus Christ, will become like him. Why? Because we'll want him. Advertisers know that they shouldn't just tell you about a product, they want to show you the product. They want, because they know that there's something about human nature that if we see something, we tend to want it. We want what we see. It looks so delicious, it looks so cool, it looks so comfortable. When we see it, we tend to want it. In 1 John 3 2, John is saying that when we see Jesus Christ with our eyes, with the eyes of our body, when we actually see the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ, we will want that same glory and beauty. We'll want Him so much that it will utterly change us on the spot in that moment. In that moment, everything wrong with us will go away. We will become perfect, we'll become glorious. But Paul is saying that you don't have to wait for that experience. He says, we who are contemplating the Lord's glory, it means that you can see his glory through faith. You can see his glory through the eyes of faith with the power of the Spirit. There's a sense in which you can see him. No, not like it's going to be at the end, not the vision of Christ at the end of time, but to some degree, you can see him now and that changes you now. What does that mean? 17th century Puritan John Owen titled his last book, Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ. He said that over his lifetime, he'd come to realize that you never changed just by trying harder, just by effort, just by exercising your will. Owen said that you don't become honest by trying. You don't become forgiving and generous and brave just by trying. If you say, I need those to be those things because I have to. I have to in order to get to heaven. I have to in order to feel good about myself. I have to in order to get the approval of other people. He says, whenever you do something because you have to, it's always a superficial change. It never lasts. What really changes me to become forgiving is not the fact that the Bible says you must forgive. It's seeing Jesus Christ, seeing the beauty of Jesus dying on the cross to forgive me. And when I say, oh Lord, did you do that for me? You forgave me, that changes me. Then I'm not becoming forgiving because I have to. I'm becoming forgiving because I want to. It's not the size of Jesus doing this as an example to us, it's Jesus as our Savior doing it for me and doing it for you. Do you want to be courageous? Don't just do it because I don't want to be a coward. That won't change you. But when you see Jesus Christ facing hell for you, setting his face like flint and not backing away from the pain and doing it for you, and you say, Savior, did you do that for me? That will make you courageous. John Owen, commenting on this verse, he says, when Jesus says, I want those you have given me to see my glory, he says, this is the ultimate goal of salvation. The ultimate goal of human life is to see his glory. Because when you see his glory, you'll want it and you'll be utterly and absolutely transformed by your love for him. But Owen says that that can to some degree happen now. It's not a vision seen with your physical eyes, it's a vision seen with the eyes of faith. It's faith sight, it's seeing by faith. It's happening now, right now. It's happening to me and I hope it's happening to you and I hope it's happening to others sitting around you right now in this moment. We're describing Jesus, we're talking about him, we're imagining him dying for us, we're imagining him being courageous for us. Are you feeling moved by that in any way? That is what will change you. Not just trying to be courageous, not just trying to be forgiving, but by seeing him. When you just put pressure on the will, You don't change the thing that needs to be changed in order for you to really change. Your loves have to be changed. The loves of your heart. Maybe you overwork. One of my colleagues, a workaholic, recently burnt out, ended up in hospital, and uh, she ignored the advice of, you know, you're working too hard, your body can't take it, you've got to stop overworking. And she hasn't changed her lifestyle. And I asked her why, and she said, I can't slow down. I love my work. If the thing you love most in life is money and success and power, then that's what controls you. And you're going to remain a workaholic until you love something more than money and success. Or maybe you can't get over that past rejection. You can't get over the betrayal and the shame and the anger that comes from it. What's going on in your heart? Your reputation in that moment is more important to you than anything else. If you love your reputation, if you love human approval above everything, and you've lost your reputation and you've lost human approval, then you'll never get over the anger and the shame of it. But if you love something else, Thomas Chalmers, 19th century Presbyterian minister, wrote a classic sermon the expulsive power of a new affection in which he describes the secret to change. He says, there is not a single personal transformation in which the heart is left without an ultimate object of beauty and joy. The heart's desire for a particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to just dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. I may stop loving this too much because I love that more than this. The heart's got to have something. There's no personal transformation in which the heart is left without an ultimate, ultimate object of beauty and joy. So. How do we change? Only when the thing that you love too much, the thing that was ruining your life, is relegated, only when when that happens and you love Jesus more, only then do you change. When you love Jesus more than money, you'll become more generous. When you love Jesus more than power, you'll become a servant. When you love Jesus more than your reputation, because you know you've got the ultimate good name in Jesus Christ, only then will you be able to forgive people who have wronged you. It's only as you see him by the power of the Spirit. Ephesians 3, 16 to 19, I pray that he may strengthen you with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, that you may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We need spiritual power in our inner being to grasp how much Jesus loves us. You say, but I already know Jesus loves me. No, you don't. You need the power of the Spirit as we pray, as we read the Bible, as we're in worship services, as we're in life groups, only by the power of the Spirit with the eyes of faith Can we grasp his love? The more you contemplate the glory and the beauty of Jesus, the more you see it, the more you will change. And you can see it now. You can have it right now. Charles Spurgeon, so-called prince of preachers, preached a sermon on three words out of the prodigal son story in Luke 15 it's that moment when the prodigal son is running back uh, sorry is coming back to his father to his father's house father sees him and runs out hugs him and kisses him and spurgeon preached the whole sermon on three words and kissed him he asked the question what is a kiss a kiss is not just love it's love made manifest it's love expressed it's love felt The father doesn't just love the son, the father kisses the son. And then he said, there is no way you're going to make it in life unless sometimes the Holy Spirit sheds the love of God abroad in your heart. Sometimes the love of God has to be manifest in your life. This truth has got to jump off the page, that he loves you even as he loves his son. It's got to flood your heart. You've got to be saying, oh my word, you've got to be moved. Sometimes it's got to happen. Sometimes you've got to feel the love of God. It's got to be made manifest. And then Spurgeon says this, some of us know at times what it is to be almost too happy to live The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions, that we've almost had to ask for the stay of the delight because we could endure it no longer. Spurgeon is saying that sometimes in prayer, sometimes in reading, he is so overwhelmed by the love of God, it's so overpowering that he's been afraid that he couldn't endure it, and he has to ask God to stay his hand to stop the joy now i'm i'm an englishman and i'm telling you that if that experience is available to a 19th century victorian era british preacher then it's available to any christian who believes in jesus christ and it's available to you but do you know anything of it can you relate to what Spurgeon is describing. You're not going to be able to make it through life without it. All right. Lastly, what will the final outcome be? Lastly, here's the good news. Regardless of how good or bad we are at contemplating the glory of Christ while we're on this earth, Jesus says this, Father, I want my brothers and sisters to be where I am, to see my glory, so that the love you have for me may be in them. That's what Jesus wants for you and for me at all times. From the time before you believed, from the moment you believed, and right through the rest of your life into eternity. That's what Jesus is praying for, and his prayers get answered. It's amazing. Jesus wants the love of the Father, sorry, the love the Father has for him to be in us. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon, Heaven is a world of love. He says that we need loving relationships here in this world, but love relationships make us miserable. If you don't have love, you're really miserable. But if you do have loving relationships, you're fairly miserable. And those are the only two ways of being a human being. Edward's five reasons why loving relationships make us miserable. Firstly, we all want to be loved for our own sake. Isn't it awful when you find somebody, sorry, when you thought that somebody liked you, but then they were just using you to get to somebody else? You feel objectified, you feel dehumanized. But here's the problem, all of us love one another because it benefits us. We tend not to love people just for their own sake. We tend to love people for our sake. Therefore, all of us are yearning for the kind of love that nobody can really give another. Secondly, Edward says, we can't express our love. If you love somebody, you want to tell them. You want to articulate it, but it's so frustrating when you can't. Edward says, we cannot express our love because Some of us just don't like to talk about it. We feel awkward. Some of us get scared about it. Some of us just won't do it. And of course, some of us love people who we desperately wish would tell us that they love us, but they never do. Thirdly, we want to love mutually. There's nothing worse than loving somebody who doesn't love you the same way. To love somebody so much and they don't love you at the same level. You love them far more than they love you. It's terrible. But second worst is when you love somebody less than they love you. That's not quite as bad, but it's pretty awful. People who think you are their best friend, and they come to you, and they want time with you, but you don't really like them. And they know that you don't really like them. It's awful because there's something in every human love that wants reciprocity. Every human love wants to be answered. And in this life, we're almost always unaligned. We're missing each other. We love too much people who don't love us as much and vice versa. Fourthly, one of the worst things about love is that when you love somebody, you need them to be happy. If you love somebody and they're not happy, then you can't be happy. Their unhappiness darkens your happiness. This is one of the main reasons people avoid love. But if you pull back and you don't have love relationships, you're even more unhappy. If you throw yourself into love relationships, you're constantly unhappy because the people you love aren't happy and their unhappiness drains the happiness out of your life. If you haven't had kids yet, parents know this, but if you haven't had kids yet, once you start having kids, then for the rest of your life, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. <laughs> Why? Because your hearts are tied to your children. And you cannot be happier than they are. So. Let me summarize his first four points. We want to be loved for our own sake, but nobody does that. We want to express love fully, but nobody ever does that. We want love that's mutual, and that seldom happens. And we want love in which the persons we love are all happy, and that can never happen. Lastly, we don't ever want to say goodbye. If you love somebody, you never want to lose them. If you live a long time, you're going to see virtually everybody you love die. If you die young, that's a tragedy. If you die old, that's a tragedy. C.S. Lewis said this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. When you see all the ways in which we desperately need love and the fact that this world cannot give us the love we really need, it can't give us the love for our own sake. It can't give us love without parting love in mutuality. When you realize that this world can't satisfy, you ask the question, what are we really built for? The band can make their way up. I'm coming in for landing. We're built for the love of heaven. We're built for love in which everyone loves one another for their own sake, in which everybody expresses their love perfectly, in which there's complete mutuality, and in which the people around us are all happy. In heaven, everybody we love is going to be infinitely happy which means it's going to magnify our happiness. In heaven, we won't ever have to say goodbye to anybody. Where is that? It's right here. Jesus prays, Father, I want them to be where we are. I want to be in them. I want them to be in us. There's a fountain of love at the heart of the universe. It's called the Trinity. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have been loving each other and glorifying each other for all eternity. If you trust Jesus, then when you die or at the end of time, you'll be plunged into that and all will be well. If you do not believe in God at all and you don't believe there's an afterlife, then death is going to take away everything meaningful to you, it's going to take away all of your love relationships. If, on the other hand, you say, I believe in an afterlife, I believe in God, I believe that if I lived a pretty good life, then when I die, I'll probably go to heaven. If that's your belief, you should be scared of death too because it's the ultimate and final test. And how do you know if you've lived a good enough life? That's gonna be a pretty scary moment. But believe the gospel, put your trust in Jesus, receive the love the Father has for you in Christ and fear no darkness. Then you can taunt death the way Paul did. You can say, oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? You can look at death and you can say, all you can do is plunge me into an ocean of love. And you can say to death, what George Herbert said at the end of his great poem. Spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou so much worse that thou shalt be no more. Let's stand. I wonder if you would uh, like to pray this prayer with me in response to what the Lord has shared, I trust through me. Okay, so let's pray this together. I've written it out. Hopefully this resonates with you. If it does, let's do this. Our Father, you made us for yourself. You made us for heaven. Help us to realize that you love us exactly as you love Jesus. Let us live in the joy of that glorious truth. Let it change us. Help us to contemplate Jesus's beauty until we become like him. We ask this in the most beautiful name in all of heaven and earth, Jesus. Amen.